Welcome to a Wednesday night edition of Tisky Sour. Lots of important stories for you. A wave of strike action. Really incredible, the, the number of disputes that seem to be in play today. Lots of people on strike and people voting to go on strike. We're also talking a row about private schools. A very ridiculous video from Nick Ferrari for you to look forward to. And I'm sure you've heard about this already. It is pretty remarkable. A fallout from, I mean, what was clearly a racist conversation by a member of the royal household at a dinner last night. I am joined all evening by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm good. I have to say, I'm not. I'm not feeling the temperature drop. It's it's not what I signed up for. I'm not into it. I'd like to go back, please, to to July. Thanks. This winter, it can feel like almost everyone is going on strike. Just today, 115,000 Royal Mail workers are in the middle of a 48-hour strike. 70,000 lecturers are also on strike, as are teachers in over 76-form colleges. And boats are also coming in thick and fast for more strike action next month. Ambulance workers were the latest. This afternoon, it was announced 10,000 of them will be taking industrial action. So what are the disputes about? Well, we'll take them in turn. The CWU is the union representing royal mail workers. They're demanding pay rises in line with increases in the cost of living. And Dave Ward, the union's general secretary, has stated that the terms of the dispute don't end there. He spoke to BBC Breakfast this morning about Simon Thompson, the boss of Royal Mail. What he's putting in front of our members, no union, no worker would ever accept. So let me just explain one or two of those points. He's asking us to accept that thousands upon thousands of our members will be sacked at the same time as they are bringing in self-employed drivers, uh, new entrants on 20% less paid terms and conditions, and whilst they're also retaining over 11,000 agency workers. That's not acceptable. We're heading for compulsory redundancies here. The company wrote to us yesterday asking us to now consult on how compulsory redundancies will be introduced. We can't carry on like this. We've got to see the government stepping in as well. We've got to see the government saying this is a, a service to the public that is being destroyed. How and concerned what they are want you? To do, sorry to interrupt you. Sorry, how concerned sorry. are you, though, that by striking, you are pushing customers, consumers to other forms of business, basically, which is what he would say is happening already. Now, what he's doing is destroying the service that our members love to provide to the public. So what he's doing to the service, let me be absolutely clear here, they are abandoning the AEM delivery period. And they're doing that in favour of turning Royal Mail, one of the greatest companies in the UK, into just another parcel courier company. They don't want to deliver to the public anymore. They want to end the universal service. I would really love to see you inviting me with Mr. Thompson on your show and having a proper debate about one of the greatest companies in the UK and what's really going on. And the financial mismanagement, um, they should be sacked for what's going on. They are claiming they're losing a million pound a day. That may well be true now. But, you know, they gave away only weeks ago 567 million to shareholders. They yeah. ended the cross-subsidy. The French post office, the government, uh, the German post office, they used their international acquisitions to support their own infrastructure. This guy is using it to give money to shareholders. It is outrageous what's going on. Sorry. He would I'm also sorry. say at this point... No, I'm coming across as a little bit concerned here. No. 
That's the context of the Royal Mail dispute, articulated very well by friend of the show, Dave Ward. But what about the 70,000 lecturers on strike today? Well, they're in a dispute with employers over pay conditions and pensions. This was UCU General Secretary Joe Grady on Newsnight last week. She was debating Chief Executive of the Universities and Colleges Employers Association, Raz Jeffwa. Raj just said that an offer was made in March. They have made no offer since then, despite the fact that the union lobbied them to, that we balloted over the summer, that we informed that we'd be taking action. So, yes, what you're saying is true, but there is 150 employers who are doing nothing. And, you know, my members live in the real world. They live month to month, not earning enough, uh, getting paid at the end of the month, being in the overdraft at the beginning of the month. We want Raj to be able to bring his members that he represents into the real world with our members. Because you may be correct that different institutions have different incomes, have different reserves, but there is money in the sector to pay everyone properly. There is money in the sector to resolve this disruption. Does that require government intervention or something to even out? I mean, I I don't quite see how a university that hasn't got the money can can pay it. Well, I need to, I need, we need in this sector evidence that there are institutions that can't because at the minute we don't see that. What we see are institutions sitting on their hands and doing nothing. Right. Um, And, you know, the the argument that people haven't lost jobs in this sector, when you have 90,000 people on insecure contracts, people are losing employment all the time. Thousands of teachers from sixth form colleges were also on strike today. That was overpay, but also broader cuts to the sector. And that sentiment is widespread throughout the public sector. Rachel Harrison is GMB National Secretary. She spoke earlier to Sky News explaining why ambulance workers have voted for strike action. GMB members working across most ambulance services in England and Wales and some NHS trusts have voted today to take industrial action and for GMB that will be potentially before Christmas. What that exactly looks like will be determined at a local level with uh, our local GMB representatives and the local managers uh, of the ambulance stations and services. What's important to know about this, though, is that our members have taken this act as an absolute last resort. They don't want to take action, but they feel that they are not being listened to. So that's why they voted in their thousands to take industrial action. Are you able to to reassure anyone who hears this news and is worried about it that patients' lives won't be put at risk because of ambulance strikes? Our members will not put patients at risk. I think it's important that your viewers are aware that it's not our members that have put patient standards at the low that they are currently. It's this government that have done a decade of austerity and cuts and deliberately under-resourced and underfunded the NHS. So our members will do their best to protect patients. And one of the reasons they're taking action is because of patient standards and because nobody is listening to them. Of course, as we spoke about on Friday's show, we're also due the first nursing strikes in 100 years this December, and we're set for more strikes on the railways that month too. Now, to discuss this wave of industrial action, I spoke earlier to Navarra Media's Labour Movement correspondent, Polly Smythe. I started by asking her if there's a common thread running through all of these disputes. I think on the surface, a lot of these look like straightforward pay disputes, and in many ways they are. We're in a cost of living crisis, you know, also everybody gets paid, so it's a kind of a good way to understand other disputes. But I think if you scratch below the surface of all of these disputes, there's always a kind of a far more complicated story. So for instance, when I was talking to nurses who are going to be striking in December about their, you know, the decision to strike nationally for the first time ever in their union's history, 
pay came up, but actually far more important was nurses' concerns for patient safety. And, you know, they were saying that the level of staffing that they're running at the moment meant that they were just fundamentally unable to perform their job, um, you know, and do the job the way that they wanted to do it and the reason they got into it. So I think that there's a kind of a much deeper undercurrent in, in all of these disputes, which you can kind of get into. I also think, secondly, that coming out of the pandemic, a lot of anger has been generated. You know, a while ago, um, I heard the CWU Deputy General Secretary Tyree Pullinger speak, and he said, talking about kind of key workers, he said, you know, we've learned that we don't get what we deserve. We get what we negotiate, you know. And I think it's no surprise when you look at the workers who are on strike, you know, ambulance workers, postal workers, um, you know, teachers, many of whom were classified key workers during the pandemic. I think that that undercurrent of anger is really carrying a lot of these strikes along. One thing the pandemic maybe did sort of raise expectations. People thought, oh, we will be appreciated from now on. People have realised how essential the jobs we do are. Surely we'll get paid better afterwards. And then, no, immediately afterwards, like, no, no, you've got to actually accept real-term pay cuts. Um, In disputes like this, I mean, what we normally hear from the bosses is, oh, God, we would love to concede to your demands. We would love to give you you what, what you want, but we can't afford to. Times are tough. Is that what we're hearing this time around? How are trade unionists responding? A hilarious example of this is, um, so recently at the National Coal Mining Museum up in Wakefield, the management told the striking workers there, um, workers who went on strike over pay, that they were actually unable to offer a pay rise because there was a government-imposed pay cap. But then when Unison, who represent the workers, contacted the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, they confirmed that the pay cap did not actually apply to the museum and workers there have since won a 10.5% pay rise. So I think that's a kind of neat example to show that actually very, very infrequently when an employer says they can't um, meet the demands, you know, that's, that's, that's generally just not the case, you know. And obviously meeting those demands is a choice. You know, I think it's really instructive for me to go back to June when the RMT first went on strike. The former Tory Chancellor, Ken Clark, said that the rail strikes cannot be allowed to look successful when they settle because everybody would be looking to them, you know, and obviously public sector workers, many of whom are kind of under, you know, paid less than railway workers, we're going to look to the railway sector and say, well, if they're getting X, we should get Y. So I think that there's, you know, there's a sense definitely that employers are leaning on the we'd love to pay you, but we can't. But, you know, Jeremy Hunt continuing to oppose austerity is a choice, you know, choosing to suppress wages as a means to control inflation rather than implement profit controls like the TUC have called for, that is a choice. So fundamentally, no, um, you know, a lot of employers who are holding out can pay and should pay. And you've already mentioned a couple of successful strikes, but I wonder if you could expand on that a bit. You know, strikes end for two reasons. One, you know, the workers get worn out. You can think of the minor strikes or the classic example where they essentially get defeated by the employers, or they can come to some sort of agreement which they feel is in their favour and then end up calling it off. I mean, are there any waves of strikes this year that have ended because the workers have got their demands? Or, and if so, which are the most significant? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, one of the things that's kind of come out of this um, wave of strikes is that when you look at a lot of the national disputes, you know, maybe CWU, for instance, those disputes are kind of by now quite longstanding and bitter um, and um, kind of entrenched. But when you look at the local level, actually, a lot of disputes there are being resolved and a lot of them are being resolved with quite substantially large pay rises and that again is happening in specific sectors so one thing i think is really fascinating actually is if you look at buses so 
Unite reported an 827% increase in strike activity for Unite bus workers. So in 2019, there were 11 bus strikes. But since Sharon Graham became Unite General Secretary, there have been 102 transport disputes, which is covering tens of thousands of workers, you know, um, in Arriva, in Stagecoach. So, yeah, workers are winning. Um, I think that, you know, it's really important to, to spread those wins and kind of remind workers that, you know, you can win really big. That was Navarra Media's Labour Movement correspondent, Polly Smythe. You can check out her reporting on NavarraMedia.com. And I'm sure we'll be speaking to her much more often, actually, over the coming weeks and months, because this strike wave, I think, is probably going to be the story of the winter. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this. I mean, I can't remember a time when this many people were on strike. I mean, is I, I've, I haven't checked empirically if this is the most People have been on strike on a, like, sort of over, over a period. I know that sort of in the early 2010s, you had some really big sort of public sector strikes, but it does seem like something's in the air, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that there are so many things about this that it's not just about the quantity. It's also about actually politically what's happening. Um, one thing I think is really interesting is that so many of these strikes are not defensive, right? They're not about trying to save jobs or trying to save or trying to recover what is being taken away, but actually it's about demanding more. Um, and that's actually something that we haven't been able to do in the labor movement for a while. A lot of it has been about trying to resist job cuts and things like that, which doesn't get into the nitty gritty of like actually organizationally, how is profit distributed, et cetera? How, what the, how does the government ensure that workers are paid a fair share of the wealth? that they create. And so there's that. There's also the fact that this is happening in a lot of sectors that don't traditionally strike. Um, and obviously some that have never been on strike, for example, with the nurses. Also, we're seeing much more in the private sector. Um, we're seeing a growth of wildcat strikes in Amazon, amongst bin workers, waste workers, amongst lorry drivers. And these are sectors where a lot of people are on temporary contracts. So it's a very great risk for them to to go on strike because it basically shows that things have gotten so bad their work has become so unsustainable that they would actually they actually have no choice but to do something that might risk the very job that they have um but in terms of actually comparatively to other eras it's funny that you say that it feels like you know in our lifetime we've never seen this many people going on strike but actually um James Medway talks about this in his podcast uh, Macrodose where he talked about it today, where basically, like, historically, compared to, like, the winter of discontent, 1979, where you had 11 million days of recorded strikes in that one year, actually, what we're seeing now is very, very small in comparison to when strike action was at its height in the 20th century. And that only speaks to actually how effectively the Thatcherite assault on unions has been in its legacies under new labor in the 1990s and the 2000s, that what we're experiencing now, which is a tiny fraction of what we experienced in the 1970s, feels so significant. And what it tells me is that there's still so much further to go. There's still so much further that can be done. There's so much more power for the labor movement to build. And I think that the government and the media are very aware of that. And we can see that in some classic anti-union tactics being used. For example, the refusal to negotiate, as we saw last week when Mick Lynch accused the government of essentially blocking the rail, the, the rail industry from coming to an agreement with the, with the RMT 
That is a way of the government preemptively, because they know the kind of untapped power that the labor movement has of trying to preemptively turn workers against one another, turn workers against workers that are on strike um, by engineering failure and then blaming it on the labor movement. So I think it's it's incredible. You know, we're in a really exciting moment, but there is still so much more that can be done. I think that's what's quite um, uplifting, really, is how successful every representative I've seen sort of go on on television for the trade unions sort of very successfully bat away these claims. Oh, well, you workers are going to be damaging patients. I mean, everyone has seen that the NHS has been pushed close to collapse. I mean, basically at collapse. I mean, obviously, it depends how you define it. But if you've got 40,000 people waiting over 12 hours to be seen in A&E, that by many definitions, it's collapsed already, right? So when you have TV hosts and politicians try to blame striking workers for risking patients' lives, I think every union representative I've seen has been incredibly skilled, essentially, at saying this is it's not us that caused this crisis. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the government to pin any problems on striking workers because everyone can see that the problems way preceded this industrial action. I think most people can draw the connection between a crumbling service and why workers might feel they need to go on strike. Next story. Britain's private schools receive hundreds of millions of pounds in tax breaks from the government despite charging eye-watering fees. That's an arrangement that Labour has pledged to end, and the Tories hate it, none more so than Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. He was educated at Winchester College, an exclusive boys' school that charges nearly £35,000 a year for day pupils and £46,000 for boarders. That's people who, who live there during term. At Prime Minister's questions, Keir Starmer put this to the former head boy. Mr Speaker, Winchester College has a rowing club, a rifle club, an extensive art collection. They charge over £45,000 a year in fees. Why did he hand them nearly £6 million of taxpayers' money this year in what his levelling up secretary calls egregious state support? Mr Speaker, I'm pleased he wants to talk about schools because we've recently announced billions more funding for our schools. We're we're helping millions of the most disadvantaged children catch up with their lost learning. And we're driving up school standards, Mr Speaker. But during COVID, during COVID, he wanted to keep schools closed. We shouldn't be surprised because I listen to parents and he listens to his union paymasters. His levelling up secretary, I see him down there, who after all was education secretary for four years, said you could scarcely find a better way of ending burning injustices than scrapping these hands out. And here's why, and he talks about driving up standards, just down the road in Southampton, and he'll know this, four in every ten pupils fail their English or maths GCSE this year. Four in ten. Is that six million pounds of taxpayers' money better spent on rifle ranges in Winchester or driving up standards in Southampton. He talks about school standards. It's under, it's, it's under a Conservative government and thanks to the reforms of the former Education Secretary that now almost 90% of schools are good or outstanding. But Mr Speaker, when, Mr. Speaker, whenever, whenever, Mr. Speaker, whenever he attacks me about where I went to school, he is attacking the hard-working aspiration of millions of people in this country. 
He's attacking people like my parents, Mr. Speaker. This is a country that believes in opportunity, not resentment. He doesn't understand that, and that's why he's not fit to lead. I think 7% of students go to private school, don't they? So that's Rishi Sunak essentially saying, if you're one of the other 93%, you're not particularly aspirational. The aspirational thing to do is to send your kids to private school, because if you had aspiration, you wouldn't send them to the state schools that the Tories have been underfunding for 12 years. Doesn't seem like a vote winner to me, but anyway. Let's move on to the reference about the, or the reference to the levelling up minister, Michael Gove. So in 2017, when the former education secretary was a backbencher, that was under Theresa May, he wrote an article in the Times with this headline. You might be surprised to see Michael Gove writing this. Put VAT on school fees and soak the rich. And you've got this subheading, removing the tax advantages of private schools would boost standards in the state sector and raise vital extra funds. Now, obviously, he is now in cabinet. Um, so he is agreeing with what Keir Starmer was saying there. Let's go on to the article. So in, in the piece, he said this, private school fees are VAT exempt. That tax advantage allows the wealthiest in this country, indeed the very wealthiest in the globe, to buy a prestige service that secures their children a permanent positional edge in society at an effective 20% discount. Private schools and their students are massively overrepresented in the highest ranks of politics, business, the media and sport. They still secure a dominant share of the places at Russell Group universities, in our leading professions and in our cultural firmament. Interesting word. Not sure I've ever used that before. He went on to say this, are the children of the rich intrinsically more talented and worthy, more gifted and more deserving of celebration than the rest? Of course not. But our state subsidized private schools continue to give them every possible advantage. The money we raise from ending the tax advantages enjoyed by private schools could be redeployed to help the most vulnerable children of all those taken into care. We could increase the amount spent on their education through the pupil premium. We could expand Frontline, the scheme that recruits the most talented Russell Group graduates to become social workers supporting these children. So that's sounding a hell of a lot more progressive than Rishi Sunak. Indeed, it's hard not to agree with Gove's former self there. I wonder what he was thinking when the cameras are on him at Prime Minister's question today. So what are the facts here? Um, because private schools are counted as charities. They don't charge VAT on their fees, but they also don't pay corporation tax or capital gains tax on their profits. And they get an 80% discount on business rates. That's even though many of them have huge endowments. For example, Sunak's old school Winchester has an endowment of £417 million, which is second only to Eton's £542 million. And any interest on dividends they earn on those sums are currently completely tax-free. In total, the tax exemptions enjoyed by private schools cost the Treasury £3 billion every year, and just forcing private schools to charge VAT on fees would raise £1.7 billion. Of course, that would also increase their fees by 20%, leading the Daily Mail to run this hysterical front page. Keir's class war threat to 200 private schools. And they say Labour plan to put VAT on fees could lead to mass closures. Now, first of all, 200 schools aren't going to close. The Mail and all the other papers who've picked up that line are very sketchy on the details. And most people who can afford those fees can afford an extra 20%. Well, that's what I assumed. But can they? Can they? Because not everyone agrees. This is how Nick Ferrari responded to Labour's plans. Let me get this out there. I benefited from having a private education, but I recall that my parents, I mean, I'm not going to pretend for a second that we struggled or we didn't, but it was out there. 
And as you now know, I've told you the school that my two sons went to, and I was very lucky that me and my ex-wife, that was a decision we took, and they went to a great school in Dulwich called Alain's. But let me tell you, I so the idea that they are the preserve of rich people is, pardon my language, utter cobblers. I saw people bringing their children to that particular school with cars held together with gaffer tape who didn't take, maybe maybe just had one holiday a year, and that was very much an, a, a staycation, didn't have this amazing life of skiing. Now, are there children who go to these schools whose parents go skiing and to Verbier and they have their own villas in Tuscany? Yes, of course they are. And is there a brand new Porsche and a Range Rover? Yes, of course there is. But there are also parents who decide that what they want to do with their money is work damn hard, save, and then not renew the car, not go on holiday, not have lovely fur coats or watches or whatever else. Because it, And we should allow the decision, shouldn't we? First of all, I'm just going to preempt everything I say. I'm very rich. My parents were very rich. My children are incredibly privileged, and I was also incredibly privileged. But in my experience of being incredibly privileged, I have met the odd person who seemed slightly, not exactly completely rich. They had gaffer tape on their cars. Can you believe it? But they had parents that cared so much about their kids that they, they taped up their cars with gaffer tape so they could afford to give their children the best future. That's the aspiration that Rishi Sunak was talking about in PMQs. Inspiring, really, isn't it, Dahlia? Were you moved by Nick Ferrari's tales of parents rocking up to private school with gaffer tape on their cars, foregoing holidays abroad so that they can give their children the future they deserve? It's just absolutely disgusting. Like, to even be able to make the choice between a second holiday or and, and your child going to private school or a fur coat and your child going to private school, that in itself indicates that you are in like the top, top percentiles of wealth in this country. If you're working a minimum wage job or if you're working a job where you haven't had a real terms pay rise in years, you can't like aspire your way into like an extra 30k a year. Like it's just the maths isn't mathsing here. On a broader point, I mean, there just that there, there isn't any justification for the existence of private schools, let alone the idea that they should have tax exempt status from the government and be essentially subsidized by by the government. Because the only logic that underpins the idea that a private school should exist is the logic that wealthier kids are entitled to a better start in life. Like that's it. Why else would you create a two tier education system that is based on money? And it's actually not about aspiration at all. It's actually the opposite because aspiration implies some kind of social mobility or class mobility. No, the existence of private schools is 100% about the preservation of class. It's about wealthy people, regardless of, you know, ability or commitment to education or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to get into this idea of you know, I don't think that you can ascertain a person's ability or a child's ability at the age of five or at the age of 11, but whatever, like put that to one side. The notion of a private school is that regardless of academic ability or commitment to education, that the children of the wealthy have their place in society secured. And, you know, making the claim that, oh, you know, the odd lower middle class kid or the odd middle class kid managed to to kind of slip their way in because their parents, you know, gave everything up or their parents worked three jobs. That doesn't prove that that is the exception that proves the rule that this is about fundamentally preserving the class interests of the very wealthy. 
and you know the idea that there that some lower middle class parents should give up everything and should work multiple jobs in order to give their child a you know a solid start in life and that's not to say that comprehensive schools can't give you solid starts in life but it's in, it's very difficult with the kind of under-resourcing that we're seeing in the state education sector but that's not a positive thing. It's not a positive idea that a parent feels like they have to take on multiple jobs that will take them away from other parts of parenthood, that they have to give up, you know, important family experiences or whatever in order to give their child a solid start in life. That's not a good thing. Like that's not something to be proud of. That is an indictment of a system that, you know, stratifies children, you know, at the beginning of their lives into the haves and the have nots, into an education environment that has, you know, good resources, that has the kinds of facilities that allow for children to develop their talents and develop their interests, that has, uh, you know, special education needs provisions, that has, uh, you know, a decent child to teacher ratio. You know, these are all things that we know impacts outcomes and is much more accessible for private for private schools. And the reason that people like Rishi Sunak and, and Nick Ferrari are so deeply attached to the private school system is because they deeply fear what it would mean to lose it. What would it mean to lose the choice that wealthy people have to ensure that their child is in the top 7% of educational outcomes? What would it mean for them to lose the ability to make that choice, to, to, to guarantee that role in society? You know, in fact, for them, the disparity between comprehensively educated kids and privately educated kids works in their favor. It, it, it's, if anything, it's a bonus because it widens the gap between their children and the rest of society. It gives their kid the competitive edge because it gives them a bunch of stuff that kids who have gone to state schools can't access. And, you know, I even think that the whole idea that labor is going down this revoking charity status thing, it, it's like unnecessarily kind of complicating the issue because in a sense, some of the critics of this policy are right in that this is not going to affect the super, super wealthy who will always be able to pay fees no matter what. It is more likely to affect the odd lower middle class kid that managed to get in. It is more likely to, it's not going to really shake the fundamental problem that we have with private schools, which is that it reproduces the class system. Like, let's just cut the crap and just abolish them because there's, there's no, there's no actual justification for keeping this ridiculous system going other than preserving the leg up that a certain segment of this society has over the rest of us. Mm, I'm just, I'm just thinking more about the, um, you know, Nick Ferrari declaring his interests. Because I, I assume when he was sort of saying that, he was thinking like, look, I'm being an honest, transparent journalist. I'm saying I do have a stake in this conversation because my parents sent me to private school and I've sent my kids to private school. But I'm just thinking that that disclaimer should actually be in front of way more conversations. Like anytime Nick Ferrari talks about austerity on LBC, he should have to do a disclaimer. Oh, by the way, actually, I don't have much of a stake in public services because my kids go to private school and I went to private school. Anytime mm. he talks about a teacher's strike, he should say, well, to be honest, I don't really understand what's going on here at all because my kids went to private school and I went to private school. You know, why is it only when, we're when he's specifically defending private schools does he have to give that disclaimer? Because the whole point of, I mean, as you said quite articulately there, 
private schools, they are about sort of this positional good where you say, I want an advantage over the rest of society. But they're also saying, I can opt out out of public services. I don't really care Mm -hmm. if school budgets have been squeezed over the past 12 years as they have been, because that doesn't affect my kids. You know, Mm -hmm. so many MPs legislating on the budgets that go to the schools that 93% of the population go to, when it has no impact whatsoever on their kids because they've opted out. Mm. It's it's like as if we had, if 7% of the the population got their cancer treatment private and then you've got all these Tory MPs voting to squeeze the funding of the NHS, that would be a scandal. It should be. And Mm. here we sort of accept it. I mean, if anything, the underfunding of, you know, state schools increases the competitive edge that they are buying by paying for private school. And I actually think the point about healthcare is, is really important. I think I would love to know where, like, whether when Tory MPs, whether they're calling up the GP at 8am in order to try and get a same day appointment, or whether they have, you know, private health insurance that allows you to basically get a GP appointment on demand whenever you need. I actually think that's a really important point. And I think that the disclosure of, you know, where they get their healthcare from when they are legislating on the NHS is actually a really, I think the the usage of private health insurance has massively increased in this country. And I think that's actually a really important point. The other argument that's always made is, oh, it would would burden the state schools if some kids didn't go to private school because then the state school would have to educate more kids. I think what that misses is like, private schools don't create teachers. They hire existing teachers. Now, if Mm. the private school didn't hire those teachers, where would they be teaching in state school? You've got exactly the same with private healthcare. So people say, oh, well, if the the private healthcare companies, they can take some people off the waiting list and some people are going to go up the waiting list. Who's doing the operation in your private hospital? It's the doctor who was probably trained. Mm. Well, actually, it's it's, it's worse than being trained at the taxpayer expense because they were probably trained at the taxpayer expense of someone in Nigeria, someone like much poorer than the the average British taxpayer. So you've got these super rich people, not only poaching doctors from the NHS, but they're poaching doctors from the NHS who've already poached their doctors from developing countries who can barely afford to train them anyway. The whole thing is rotten to the core. And Nick Ferrari is an out of touch arsehole, as is Rishi Sunak. Let's move on. Ngozi Falani. She's the founder of the charity Sister Space, which provides support for African and Caribbean heritage women affected by abuse. And at a recent event at Buckingham Palace, she was subject to racial abuse. After the event and from the Sister Space Twitter account, Falani said this, mixed feelings about yesterday's visit to Buckingham Palace. 10 minutes after arriving, a member of staff, Lady SH, approached me, moved my hair to see my name badge. The conversation below took place. The rest of the event is a blur. And then she says, thanks to Mandu Reed and Suzanne Jacobs for support. Now, this is the text of the conversation. So shared by Fulani in that tweet. The aide says, where are you from? And Fulani says, sister space. The aide says, no, where do you come from? She says, we're based in Hackney. No, what part of Africa are you from? And then she says, I, d- I don't know. They didn't leave any records. Then the aide says, well... You must know where you're from. I spent time in France. Where are you from? And then she said, here, UK. No, but what nationality are you? I am born here and am British. Then the aide says, no, but where do you really come from? Where do your people come from? And she says, my people, lady, what is this? And she says, oh, I can see I am going to have a challenge getting you to say where you're from. When did you first come here? She says, lady, I am a British national. My parents came here in the 50s when she says, oh, I knew we'd get there in the end. You're Caribbean. 
And Fulani says, no, lady, I am of African heritage, Caribbean descent and British nationality. And the royal household lady says, oh, so you're from? The exchange was witnessed by two other women. And one of them was Mandu Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party. She spoke to Sky News about the incident. We arrived at the reception and were ushered into the main room where uh, the reception was taking place. Myself, Ngozi and another campaigner were standing together, three of us, black women. We were approached by a member of the royal household who came over, began the usual small talk. Very quickly, she zoomed in on Ngozi and asked her where she was from. Ngozi said she was from Sister Space, which is the organization she leads. Um, but... What followed was almost an interrogation. There was question after question about where she was really from, where her people came from, what her nationality was. And, and Gozi said, I'm British. I was born in the UK, but that wasn't enough for this person. This person really wanted to um, extract some other information about her heritage, her African heritage. And it, it was really uncomfortable. In the end, um, it was a prolonged um, encounter over several minutes. And in the end, it left, you know, all of us feeling like, Perhaps we didn't belong um, at the event. Perhaps we weren't truly welcome. The woman who made those comments to Ngozi Fulani is understood to be Lady Susan Hussey. She was a close friend of the late Queen and is godmother to Prince William. She's also 83. Now, this is the response from Buckingham Palace. So they have said, we take this incident extremely seriously and have investigated immediately to establish the full facts. In this instance, unacceptable and deeply regrettable comments have been made. We have reached out to Ngozi Falani on this matter, and we are inviting her to discuss all elements of her experience in person if she wishes. In the meantime, the individual concerned would like to express her profound apologies for the hurt caused and has stepped aside from her honorary role with immediate effect. All members of the household are being reminded of the diversity and inclusivity policies which they are required to uphold at all times. What, what's it going to be like? Rule five of the handout. Don't aggressively ask people where they're from if they're not white. I, I, I can't see what, what else they're going to be reminded of. Don't be like a racist asshole. Anyway, not everyone thinks there's something to apologize for. Petronella Wyatt is a former deputy editor at The Spectator. She tweeted this today. I've known Lady Susan Hussey since I was 18. She's a decent woman and certainly not a racist. She often asked my mother where she was from because she had a Central European accent. I am sometimes mistaken for non-British because of my colouring. I'm never offended. Um, this was the follow-up. Poor Susan Hussey is 83, and this must be the first time she has ever offended anyone. She is very kind and considerate, and I feel sorry for her. Her main sin appears to be friendly curiosity. I have often asked people where their families have originally come from. That was Petronella White, who I'm sure thinks she has also never offended anyone in her life, though most certainly will have done many times, uh, if we are to take her at her word from what she said in that tweet. Um, Dahlia, I shouldn't laugh because this is also a serious story, but what, what, what do you make of this? So glad that Petronella is on the case because without her how would I know if something racist has happened in the in Buckingham Palace uh, or not you know hers is the verdict that we that we were all waiting for I just love the idea of like this woman has been very publicly criticized for saying something racist and this woman Petronella is like I say that all the time and it's fine and it's like okay if I were you I'd just keep keep quiet um you're not helping yourself but yeah I mean I think 
there's there's an irony uh, here actually that hasn't been talked about very much, which is that all the things that we're told that the royal family does for society, you know, it provides cohesion, it has a sense of duty, stability, and that's why you know uh, they it's fine that they're the world's biggest landowner. It's fine that they're given a hundred million pounds a year from the government whilst people can't afford to heat their homes. Yet I can't think of any organize, many organizations that actually embody those principles of, you know, service to your community, of providing stability than sister space. Like that's one of the things that's being lost here, which is sister space. This is one of the very few organizations in this country that provides specific domestic abuse support for black women. It supports black survivors of domestic violence in a way that is actually meaningfully accessible to them because it is aware of the specific needs that that community has, the specific ways in which they can have safety and healing in a very vulnerable moment. It's also an organization that has, by the skin of its teeth, survived essentially an all-out assault on these kinds of services. You know, when we look at the impact of austerity on domestic violence services, Across the sector, it's been devastating, but it's been particularly devastating on organizations that are set up in order to specifically cater to the needs of black and minority ethnic women. And so, you know, in in the middle of that, that kind of onslaught by austerity, Sister Space has held on by the skin of their teeth, despite the fact that demands for their services have increased by 500% in recent years, according to their figures, they have managed to keep going especially under lockdown when demand was very high. They've also survived multiple eviction attempts. Basically, this is an organization that has done all of these things that the royal family, that we're told the royal family is there to do. They've actually done it in their community in incredibly hostile conditions. And that austerity, that kind of attack on those kind of services, this is an example of kind of interpersonal racism and racial abuse. That is an example of systemic racial violence that has impacted and threatened the lives and livelihoods of thousands of women of colour in this country, particularly in London, where Sister Space operates. And so when it comes to this this ignorant comment, you know, this is something that that people of colour hear all the time, despite the fact that it has been explained over and over again in almost any forum I can think of why this is an inappropriate and alienating thing to ask someone. I'm not especially surprised that like the memo hasn't reached this 80-year-old woman who has spent her life working in an institution that more than almost anything else represents colonial plunder. Uh, I don't know what a lady-in-waiting is, but apparently she was a lady-in-waiting to the late queen for many, many years. It doesn't, you know, this is also an organization, you know, Buckingham Palace explicitly banned the employment of, to use their terms, coloreds and foreign immigrants to clerical roles until at least the the late 1960s. So it doesn't surprise me that the memo hasn't reached her. This is, you know, this is ultimately the kind of attitude that this institution represents. I think we should ask ourselves why we give that institution so much financial and symbolic and cultural power. You know, what does that say about us? But for me, like what also really communicates disrespect in a way that you really don't need to have like anti-racism training or to be an expert in critical race theory or even to have your finger on the pulse to realize it's disrespectful is the fact that this woman 
felt entitled to essentially harangue Ngozi for an answer that she clearly didn't feel comfortable giving or she clearly wasn't prepared to give. Like from, from the outline of the interaction that we've heard from Mandu and Ngozi, it's very clear that Ngozi in the moment expressed, you know, in basic words, like the questions you're asking me makes me feel like you don't think I'm British. You know, that the quest, I don't want to divulge this information to you, this line of questioning, I find it uncomfortable and disrespectful. And yet she had this entitlement to be able to just keep going and keep haranguing her until she got the answer that she wanted. And that to me, you know, take away all of the kind of knowledge about how, you know, why that question is inappropriate and whatever. You can't explain that away with like age and things like that. The fact that she felt this woman is here to basically do as I tell her, to give me whatever answers I want from her, and that I have the ability to speak to her in that way. I don't think she speaks to, you know, privately educated white men in that way. She doesn't speak to them in that kind of demeaning and and interrogatory way. That demonstrates that she doesn't see her as a full person who is worthy of like respect and dignity and boundaries. You know, that doesn't take an expert in, you know, racial politics to to understand. Yeah, that's true. it wasn't like a stray. I mean, obviously, stray comments can be, you know, very offensive and racist, but it seems like it was an interrogation. I, mean, I think she'll probably be put out to pasture. I don't know how many, how many royal events she'll be attending, but Petronella Wyatt will always have a welcoming home for her to sort of spout all her, her bizarre nonsense, her completely inoffensive questions which will be repeated over and over and over again to you if you are non-white. Let's go straight to our next story. The results of the 2021 census of England and Wales are slowly being published, and two results are causing a right-wing freakout. Here's the first one. It turns out that less than half of people in England and Wales are now Christian. This graph from the BBC shows that the number of Christians has been steadily dropping over the last 20 years. In 2001, over 70% of the two nations were Christian. Now it's only 47%. There's been a slight increase in the number of Muslims and those of other religions over that period. But the really noticeable increase is in those who don't identify with any religion at all. They've gone from around 15% of the population in 2001 to nearly 40% now. So people have been generally drifting away from religion, a fact that can hardly come as a surprise to most people. But that didn't stop great replacement theory advocate Douglas Murray from tweeting this killer take. So he's tweeting a a Guardian article with the headline, England and Wales, now minority Christian countries, census reveals. And he tweets, as predicted five years ago in the strange death of Europe, which the Guardian denounced at the time as xenophobic, I suppose facts eventually catch up with everyone, even the Guardian. The idea that that headline would mean that they suddenly agree with his book slightly bizarre. Let's look at what Murray's prediction was in his 2017 book, The Strange Death of Europe. Murray discusses the drop in the number of Christians and rise in the number of Muslims recorded by the 2011 census. But he draws this odd conclusion. To study the results of that sentence was to stare at one particularly unalterable conclusion, which was that mass immigration was in the process of altering, indeed had already altered, the country completely. By 2011, Britain had already become a radically different place from the place it had been for centuries. I mean, obviously, it was a different place than it's been for centuries. We didn't used to have motorways and tube stations and pret-a-manger. You don't need this sort of pseudo-intellectual crap to tell you that things have changed over the past few centuries. Anyway, 
In the 10 years since the 2011 census, the number of people identifying as Muslim has increased from 2.7 million to 3.9 million. That's still just 6.5% of the population. Hardly evidence of a complete alteration of the country by mass immigration. Now, joining Murray's xenophobic wobbly, Nigel Farage posted this video on social media. The Office of National Statistics figures are out today, showing that London... Birmingham and Manchester are all now minority white cities. Massive, massive demographic changes taking place in our country. More significantly for the country as a whole, it shows that only 46% now identify as Christian. So there is a massive change in the identity of this country that is taking place through immigration. You may think it's a good thing. You may think it's a bad thing. It propped up a union jack cushion. What what do you call it? The boot? The back of the car. I don't know anything about cars. Again, Farage, they're trying to link the drop in Christians to an exponential rise in other religions through immigration. Complete nonsense, as we've just talked about. And the other claim there was also nonsense. He said that London, Manchester and Birmingham are now majority non-white cities. Of course, this doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter if they, they were. But Farage hasn't even got his facts right. So this graph from the BBC shows the data for the percentage of people who identify as white in these free cities. In Manchester, it's 57%. In London, it's 54%. And in Birmingham, it's 49%. Nigel Farage was, of course, confusing white people with white British people. Details clearly aren't his strong point. In any case, that's not the real problem with Farage's video. A fact pithily summed up by none other than Sajid Javid. So he tweeted this. So he's tweeting that video we just showed you. And he says, so what? Back now. To Douglas Murray, who thinks he does have an answer to that question, to the question, so what? So he tweets, I see many commentators on the census results saying, so what if people who identify as white, British or a minority in London, Birmingham, Leicester, Manchester, etc. Just one answer to this, which is because we never voted for this. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now, of course, there are many things we don't vote for, you know, to go back to my previous, we didn't vote for metro stations or Pret-a-Manger. They, they still appear. And we clearly haven't voted for the opposite either. So if you're talking about the cities he's talking about, let's go for London, for example. We very recently elected twice a mayor of the city who is non-white. So it doesn't seem like London is full of all of these people who are incredibly stressed that not everyone's white anymore. This idea that Douglas Murray speaks for the people of Britain's metropoles is completely bizarre. And it would be strange for us to sort of determine the policies of England's major cities by what a racist in a completely different part of the country might think. Bizarre. Dahlia, I want your thoughts on this. What do you make of the right-wingers freaking out about the census? I mean, this is just like good old-fashioned, traditional race science. Like, we've ditched all the proxies, we've ditched all the kind of smokescreen, and we're just going back to the old-school eugenics paranoia about preserving racial purity, about believing that racial categories are, you know, have some kind of connection to moral content and and character, and fearing that if you dilute the racial superiority or the racial concentration of a particular group in a particular area, that, you know, there's going to be some kind of hideous moral or political decline. You know, when Douglas Murray uses this as like some kind of self-congratulatory moment to be like, see, I was right all along, you know, as if it somehow vindicates his style of politics. 
I mean, obviously it goes without saying. Firstly, he's saying, oh, the Guardian accused me of being xenophobic. And it's like, that is clearly, the Guardian is very much vindicated in that. Um, but as you know, the, the argument was never that there might, there will never be a point at which, you know, major cities in the UK white might not be one day in his book, majority white. The argument was always that it doesn't matter because racial categories are not connected to moral character. That's kind of the basic idea there. And, you know, I'm glad that Javid came out and said it, Um, you know, who cares? I mean, it would be nice if he wasn't also part of a government that was implicitly using great replacement fears and, you know, fears about there being too many immigrants and that being an invasion. You know, it'd be nice if he wasn't part of a government that was using that in order to drown refugees in the Mediterranean, because that is ultimately the, the end point of this kind of politics. But when he says, you know, what, what really annoys me as well is like when he talks about how, you know, the problem here is that we didn't vote for it. So he's trying to kind of cloud this in some kind of democratic issue or some kind of almost technocratic issue. And part of me is just like, well, Douglas, you know, one fifth of the world's population also didn't vote for the British to colonize them. And yet there you were. They also don't continue to vote for the ongoing forms of neo neocolonialism. The Iraqis, for example, didn't vote to be invaded by Britain and America, even though it was apparently on their behalf. So I don't really see his same vim for, for those kind of instances of, you know, unwarranted invasions that are actually invasions rather than imagined ones. Um, but of course, it's not about that. It's not about some kind of technocratic commitment to democracy. It's, you know, the people that Murray is speaking to when he says these things, the people he's trying to mobilize, the people he's trying to aggravate. And let's not forget that there's been a lot of work. You know, the people who are the most pressed about what's happening in London and Manchester and Leicester are people who don't live there, people who are being fed, you know, a bunch of, of social, you know, whether it's social media or traditional media of like fear mongering content about what's going on in, in these major cities as a result of, you know, increased diversity. So when he says these things, he never actually needs to explain what he means when he says that the fact that, that the idea, I mean, the misreported fact that London or that Birmingham or whatever is no longer a majority white city. He doesn't need to elaborate on what to fear there because the people he's communicating to know exactly what he means. And what he means is the same thing that Enoch Powell articulated in 1968, which continues to be an incredibly mainstream narrative and rhetoric in this country and in, in the British political sphere. And it's a fear that the power of white supremacy will be compromised or affected by racial mixing and by diversity. That's it. That's what the fear is here. And the people that he's speaking to have an inherent fear of that. And that's what he's playing up. And so I think it's, we need to call it like, like we see it, which Sajid Javid did to an extent, but also he could stand to put his money where his mouth is. Yeah, I mean, I suppose going back to the voting thing, because this idea that Britons have, I mean, because if you say quite the opposite, in fact, he's saying British people have voted multiple times that British cities should be majority white. Now, I can only really think of like one party where that was like in the manifesto, it's like the BNP. Like the BNP, I, I don't know if Douglas Murray noticed, but they never won an election. I think they never won a seat in Parliament, right? So he's saying like, democracy means that all cities have to be majority white and we have to 
I mean, the implication of this is also you're either going to have to control the births of non-white people or you're going to have to deport people based on their race. Um, and that's, again, a very kind of fascists have not been elected to power in this country, Douglas Murray. Like, you know, we we might sometimes think, or we probably often quite say that the Tories have some fascistic elements to some of their policies and definitely some racist elements to some of their policies. But no one's sort of had a, a manifesto, which is, you know, Britain for whites and won an election because like that's not what most people think. That's like what really weird people think. Very, very bizarre. Also, actually, one last thing, just because uh, the pseudo-intellectual ones, what they always do is they say, look, this is, I'm not racist. This isn't about race. It's about culture. It's about speed of change. It's about mm. culture. We need to have sort of, I, I think they sort of like kind of pluralism. So it's sort of like we need, we have distinct culture. So they can have their Islam over there. We'll have our Christianity over here. But then, <laughs> but then the moment, so they say, it's like, no, it's not race. It's not race. It's culture. And then like a census comes out, which says sort of like, there are less white people in the country. They're like, ah, <laughs> I'm right. I'm right. There are more brown people. I'm right. And I was like, I thought you said this wasn't about race. Anyway, wackos. Although I suppose, you know, we can mock them, but they are also, you know, motivating lots of political parties that are gaining presence in much of Europe, North America. I'm sure he has some supporters within the Conservative Party. There we are. Maybe he'll be a member of the royal household in no time at all. Dahlia, let's wrap up there. Um, Thank you so much for joining this evening. Thank you for having me, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for your Super Chats tonight and for watching. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. Make sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.